Welcome to the RCC Points of View podcast, brought to you by the Scottish Residential Childcare Workers Online Forum. In this episode, I talk to an academic about her early career as a youth justice social worker and hear about her transition into teaching social work at the University of Central Lancashire. I also hear about my guest's experience of developing and teaching social pedagogy. Amongst other things, we explore what the perspective may offer to those working within the health professions. So without further ado, please welcome Senior Lecturer Lois Chav. Hi Lois, thank you for taking part in the podcast. Uh, First question, sorry, is can you tell me a bit about yourself and what your connection is to RCC? in Scotland. Okay, thank you, Joe. Thank you for asking me to come on the podcast. Uh, I was really, as we say in Yorkshire, I was proper chuffed when you asked me to to come so and talk. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation and, and having a, a bit of a discussion around the questions that you sent me. Uh, so my, um, so residential uh, children's care is kind of, um, so to put it in context, I was a social worker. I worked in a youth offending team in Manchester, and then I moved to a leaving care team. Um, so, and I spent 12 years in practice before I kind of fell into teaching. And so, as you can imagine, I've worked with young people, um, a lot of young people, uh, particularly in the leaving care service, um, have been care experienced and, and lived in residential units. And for me, it was kind of, you know, there was always that bit of a mixed bag. So there were some absolutely fabulous residential workers and then there was some maybe not so fabulous and you know young people having really different experiences and being moved out of authority and then my job being there to support them to move back because you know the authority wanted the the placement to end that you know which is their home um so yeah so I've always felt really really passionate about it and so then moving into teaching um kind of wanting to instill that passion in people that were then going to go off to be social workers and thinking about some of the issues that young people face when they're care experienced and you know the difficulties and but also some of the real positives as well of of living in uh, residential care as well and then also we've been really really lucky to have Ian Milligan who you interviewed I know I've listened to his podcast with you your conversations with him we really uh, we have been really lucky to have Ian who's um, been the external examiner for our social pedagogue degree so that his job was to make sure that you know we were doing the right things with regards to teaching but also you know the students we were marking people's work fairly and you know students were so he's been great he's been um, you know I class him as a, a really good friend and colleague and he's yeah he's given us some really helpful advice over the years. Yeah that's great and when you, when you mentioned um no, you, your transition from direct practice into teaching, how did that come about? What was your kind of journey? Well, I'd, I'd, so I think, again, and listening to some of the other podcasts has really got me thinking about this. So, you know, I think I've been really lucky over my life because uh, I kind of grew up and I had parents that were really open. They were hippies. So we had like lots of different people coming in and out. And so I've always grown up being really fascinated by people. I love people. You know, I'm one of these people that can chat to somebody just stood at a bus stop. You know, it's like I'm just really interested in people. And so that kind of followed me through my practice as a social worker. And then... Um, We'd, we'd had a really tight-knit team of, uh, there were eight of us and our manager that worked together for 
um, eight years and, and then slowly people started to leave and move. And um, and so I think if I'm completely honest, I'd, I'd got a little bit burnt out and I felt like um, if I didn't leave, I would not be giving my best um, always to the young people that I was working with. And that was unfair. And I think I needed a kind of new challenge. And I just accidentally fell into teaching. Um, a friend of mine said, oh, there's a job coming up at the university. Would you think about it? And yeah, so kind of never had any desire to teach. But what I think, so I have to be honest, I think in that first year, I was dreadful. So my first 18 months, I don't think I was very good as a lecturer. But I think what I did bring was some real passion uh, um, about people wanting to do the best by young people that they work with. So I constantly tried to um, share experiences that helped people understand uh, young people and their position and, and some of the experiences that they might have had that might lead them to being in care. And, and then how do you work in a positive way with young people? So, yeah. So seeing respect that, you know, just moving into the, you know, the, the university world, academia, does, does the university give you any sort of kind of like training on that? Or is it a case I just get in and get on with it? Um, so you, you, do, <laughs> you, do, you do get some training, but you're also thrown in the deep end. And I think this is one of the misconceptions that I think people think you can go from practice and just teaching's dead easy. And there's that phrase, isn't there, that people, people who can't teach and people who can don't. So and I think it's a bit of an unfair, um, you know, my husband says it all the time and laughs. Um, but I think it's a bit unfair, really, because I think there's a real skill. And I think one of the skills of teaching is to engage people's heart and passion and you know that's what I hope students get from the session any sessions that I might run that but challenging them to think about things as well in in new and different ways um but then you do get some training as well so you do get um uh, training courses about helping you kind of learn to some of the skills of lesson planning and, and directing right. but I do think you know we're going to talk about social pedagogy in a minute but I think social pedagogy for me has not just made me think about how I practiced as a social worker, but has completely transformed the way that I teach as well. Because I think it's about recognising that you create a safe environment and people will come with knowledge and skills and experience. And it's about how do we all share that? So how do we all learn? You know, and as a yeah. lecturer, I'm still learning. I'm fascinated by the world and I want to know, I want to learn things alongside my students as well. Yeah, so... You, uh, well, we've got a connection because you are the, the, the lecturer on the MA in Social Pedagogy Leadership, and I'm currently a student on that course, so uh -huh. that, that's the connection, plus we kind of knew each other through Twitter and stuff like that prior yep. to that. Uh, and I suppose it's a question in respect of, you know, what, what and you, your, your passion, one of your, your, the courses you teach on Social Pedagogy, and also the social work course. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you think social pedagogy has in terms of the fit in respect to those who work in the helping professions? I think there's a massive fit and I think um, it's really interesting. And, you know, we, we've written a book about social pedagogy and social work and where we see that fit. And I think there is a real connection. And I think for me, what really excited me about it when I came across it and then subsequently, you know, carrying on learning about it and teaching about it. So I think social work and social care, 
very much is about the right what do we need to do so we often you know I know from teaching on social work de uh, degrees that we talk to students about what they need to do you know you've got the legislation the policies you've got you know assessments working in holistic ways but I think social pedagogy then starts to get us to think about all right well how do we do that then so if we're saying that relationship-based practice is really important then how do we do that because Actually, it's really complex. And I liked how there was, um, I think, was it, um, oh, what was his name? Let me think. Uh, John Ryan on the, his podcast episode, he, he, he mentions somebody saying, you know, it, it's, it's not, social work isn't rocket science. And then actually it's more complex. And I think that's really funny because it's true. And um, it is, the world's really complex and human relationships are really complex. So we tell social work students that this is really important. But we don't really go into any detail about, right, well, how and why. So how do you do it? So, so if you think about, like, you know, managing professional boundaries is really important. But actually, if, if we just become obsessed with the professionalization of our practice, then we, we, use, we lose the human element of it. So it's thinking about, all right, how can we be professional and have boundaries? But then how do we be more human in the way that we work with each other? Because, you know, relationships are really, really important. And I think one of the really interesting things I've found is, particularly during the pandemic, it means that I've had a bit more opportunity to go to lots of webinars and conferences that, you know, probably couldn't have found the time to normally. And what's really making my heart sing is that there's so many people out there that are saying, actually, relationships are really important. We've got to get back to this. We, we need to be focusing on you know, the working alongside and working with people. And that's very social pedagogical in its nature, isn't it? But then yeah. the opposite side as well then, so it's like the two sides of the same coin, is about social justice. And I think that's something here in the UK, um, we need to be focusing much more from a social pedagogical point of view, is this thing of, you know, the, the real importance of human rights and of recognition and challenging inequality. I mean, you know, we've, we've got a government that's saying that they want to level up well, it's all right saying it, but how are we going to do that when we've got gaping inequalities that have, you know, that have been bad for the last 10 years, but now over the, this last 18 months have got even worse. So I think, again, you know, it's heartening to see that there's a little bit of politics getting back into social work, but I think social pedagogy, again, can play a really important part in pushing forward the, you know, human rights and social justice aspect. Yeah. So just in terms of, I suppose, kind of evidence base. Mm -hmm. So in terms of social pedagogy, is there any sort of evidence base that supports the use of social pedagogy, um, you know, either from continental Europe or, you know, anywhere, is there anything you're aware of that supports the use? Yeah, there's masses. And I think this is one of the really interesting things is that, you know, there's been lots of people like Thempra and, and you know, because I know that you've been to lots of uh, conferences and social pedagogue development networks over the years. So there's been like this growing network of people that have been trying to, you know, develop social pedagogy here. And for the last, what, probably about 15 years. And I think often you, when people come across it, they kind of go, oh, that sounds nice, but it's, you know, a bit fluffy, a bit woolly. And, and actually, I think it's really important that people understand that there is um, a real theoretical and research evidence research base underpinning social pedagogy so there's masses out there you know and it isn't just in Europe and uh, South America um, but it's also here in the UK as well so you know you've had the fostering network did their head, head heart hands project looking at how social pedagogy could support their foster carers in eight pilot 
locations across the UK and then they made a commitment to try and roll that out so I think you know there's there's masses of evidence that if we're talking about relationships then social pedagogy is you know it's so aligned with relational ways of working um, and you know you've got the International Journal of Social Pedagogy that is um, you know um, hosted by UCL and SPA the professional association here and uh, you know lots and lots of great articles there that are demonstrating why social pedagogy is so important and just to pick out a few you know um, Lotta Harbo and Robin Kemp uh, published a fantastic journal article last year talking about the, the issue with you know if we start looking at evidence-based practice we start having this manualized approach to to working which means that you know I'm, I'm not knocking things like strengths-based practice or signs of safety that is very common here in England, but they've become quite procedural. So people say they're using it and it's become a tick box. So in their article, they're talking about how we need to kind of challenge that and how social pedagogy can help us with that. So how do we manage and navigate these complexities of, of, you know, of working with young people and their families that are in very challenging situations? And you've got um, Harry Ferguson, has um, published a really great article this year. You know, he's uh, along with his colleagues looking at child protection investigations and social work, and again found that relational practice and these holding relationships that social workers have, where we you know hold and support people through trauma and complexity, are, are kind of really key. And again, I think social pedagogy is really good at getting us to drill down and think about right. Well, what are the finer aspects of those relationships? How do they work? Why do they work? And what are the things that we need to yeah yeah definitely it's not just talking about communication but it's talking also sorry i know sorry it just um just slightly broke up we were back it's all right it's fine <laughs> um, uh i but in, in, in scotland as well there's been some research in respect to social pedagogy so for example you mentioned john ryan so uh, mm -hmm. Aberlour child care trust many years ago had uh, evaluated a pilot project called the Sycamore Project. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the findings were, were quite good. Uh, and I'm sure Ian Milligan was involved in that evaluation. Yeah. And also there was a pilot, um, uh, I say, uh, evaluated over in the Orkney Isles as well. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of yielded some positive results as well. So there is already some sort of history in respect to uh, social pedagogy in Scotland. And it's about, about just kind of capitalising on that as we move forward, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it is that thing about, you know, I think, I mean, you in a bit, you know, you're going to ask me about barriers. And I think one of the things is that people go, oh, this is something new again. You know, well, we've got this new way of working. We've got signs of safety. We've got the restorative practice. We've got, uh, you know, risk sensible models. And, and so I think social work sometimes, you know, there can be constantly new things being pushed forward, which is great. But then I think also as a workforce, social workers and social care staff and residential staff, you just get burnt out and fed up of the next new thing, don't you? So, but I think like I say, you know, social pedagogy isn't this new thing. It's been around for a long time and it's got um, a real sound ethical base to it. You know, it's, again, it is getting us to think about, all right, if we're saying these things are important, then, you know, how how do we do this? What so it like? Yeah, seeing respect to that, seeing you think about the, you know, uh, when you're teaching the social, work course is there any space in the kind of curriculum um to bring in any sort of social pedagogy kind of you know thinking or kind of you know any sort of kind of you know ideas that are surrounding that you know I'm just wondering how how the, the, the you know the two courses might kind of you know fuse together mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and it's a really, really good question. And I think, um, you know, there's masses and masses of, of scope for that. But again, you know, the um, I don't know what it's like in Scotland, but in England, you know, there's, there's quite um, rigid definitions about what needs to be taught on a social work degree. So again, for me, it's about the how, it's the, all right, if, if you know, if we've got to teach law and policy, if we've got to teach, um, you know, communication skills, we've got to teach, you know, looking at risk and, and working with adults and then working with children, it, you know, social pedagogy really has a place in thinking about the how. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, it's great because, you know, we see there's more and more um, lecturers kind of learning more about it and embedding it into some of the teaching in, you know, you've got Kingston University have embedded it into one of their uh, courses, which is looking at working with children and the young people and their families, um, you know, so things like that are really great because they kind of help um, spread the kind of message and get people much more aware. Um, but I do, yeah, I think there's a real fit. I mean, it's then, again, it's it's down to lecturers kind of learning more about it and then embedding it and, and making those connections and links. So, I mean, you know, at the University of Central Lancashire, where I'm based, um, I go in and do some sessions with the social work students to kind of introduce it as a you know, way of working. Um, yeah. but it's just an introduction. So I'm hopeful that they kind of then it ignites something, some interest in them, some curiosity, and then they might kind of go and find out more. Yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, in Scotland, so you get Mark Smith at University of Dundee, and as we know, Mark writes quite kind of frequently about social pedagogy. Yeah. I'm just wondering about the, the course content at Dundee, whether Mark's managed to get some stuff in. Um, yeah. So it's maybe worthwhile me asking him that and, uh, you know, finding out when he's going to come on the podcast, which should be quite interesting. Yeah. So it's just, just, just in terms of kind of barriers, in terms mm -hmm. of what do you see has been the barriers in terms of bringing in social pedagogy into practice in the UK? Um, I think so. There's 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 a few, and I think the the first one that we we often get hit with is that, you know, I think because of the way social work, social care, you know, residential um, children's residential care is is gone, is it's kind of quick solutions. We want a quick fix to things, and I think um, when you start talking about relational practice and giving people space to to have that relational practice, um, it people think, oh, well, it takes a lot of time. And actually, you know, if, if you think about paramedics, paramedics have to go to a scene very quickly and, and, and connect with people on, a, you know, very quickly. So actually, it isn't just about time. It's about the quality of what you're doing as well as the amount of time that you get as well. But I think commissioning as well, it is a bit of an issue because I think, you know, services are pitted against one another and we're seeing more and more of this, particularly in England, um, you know, more and more private organisations being commissioned to provide services. So then there's this competition between people. And again, it's that um, I need to, you know, we need to prove that we're meeting outcomes instead of actually thinking about the actual experiences of young people and their families that we're working with as well. Um, and also, I think one of the other barriers is that in all of this, there isn't a real focus on poverty as well and the impact of poverty and human rights. And I think, you know, lots of day, you know, people working day to day in direct practice um, are dealing with the sharp end of that, but there isn't the space to talk about that and, and think about how do we challenge this? So as a profession, how do we challenge this as a as a, a group, as a voice? You know, and there are there's lots of work going. I'm not saying it isn't happening. There's lots of work happening out there, but I do think sometimes people are so busy just dealing with the day to day and trying to manage that yeah. it feels like um, you know you, you haven't got the time or space to then get a little bit political and kind of challenge. Yeah 
some of that. Uh, yeah. And like I say, the the one of the other barriers is that oh god, this is something and another newfangled idea that sounds really good but won't go anywhere. We we you know we hear that quite a bit. But again, it is what once I think you start tapping into because the other core element of social pedagogy is about your values, your haltung, your you you know your um, ethical orientation, your moral compass. So I think once you start talking to people about their value base and what's important to them, then they can really begin to make those connections with social pedagogy and think, right, now I see how this is... You'll often hear people say, oh, yeah, oh God, yeah, this is something I've been doing for ages, I didn't realise. And actually, it's that, it's that. It's then, all right, so if this is something that matters to you, then be more conscious about it and let's think about how can you be more consciously aware of, of you doing, you know, using social pedagogy in your practice for better yeah. outcomes for people. Uh-huh. Aye, and it, and then I suppose that the other question would be to that is what's the antidote to make sure that we can overcome the barriers? What would you say we need to do as a, you know, a society or you know as, as professionals? You know, what would you say is your kind of the, the key points that you would like to see come in so that we can essentially, you know, make it easier? Well, I think there's lots of things, and I think, you know, um when we've run various training schemes and when students come onto the course I think it's, it's you feel it so you can feel social pedagogy has a feel to it it's not you know it's kind of it, because it's based on ethics and values and you know what feels right and also you can see that relationships are so important so when we have those more positive relationships you know even when they get strained that we then have the ability to repair relationships that might rupture or get really fractious and there's conflict um, and I think people feel it and then it helps reconnect people with the moral purpose of what they what they see their work as. And you'll often hear people say, oh, this is why I, I'm really passionate about my job. This is why I came, you know, this is reminded me about why I do my job and why this is important. Um, and also, I think it's about connecting people up. So like you said, you're on our master's course. And one of the key things that I see is that you are part of a broader, wider network of people that are all wanting, you know, thinking in similar ways and um, are trying to move things on in a positive way. So I think that strength in numbers and feeling connected to a network where you can share ideas and, and when things are difficult, you can share, you know, someone can maybe tell you to keep going and offer you advice and we can share the ups and the downs and real positive things as well so I think that would be something as well that might you know that helps kind of overcome some of the barriers and we're seeing it with things like the human learning system so the human learning system um, and the new ebook that's now out is about looking at how public sector you know the public services how do we how can we do this in a different way how can we reclaim that moral purpose that we all have you know joe you know you've got 20 odd years experience and the reason that you are still doing the job is because you're really passionate about it and i'm i'm the same you know i came into the job so i was really passionate about working with young people and i love young people and i you know i can see real potential in young people and so again, it's that the moral purpose of the job is about helping people flourish and grow and develop. So it is getting us to think about, right, well, how do we do that? How can we all, not just as individual practitioners, but as a team of people, as an organisation? So I think mm -hmm. there's some really encouraging stuff going on with the human learning system around looking at, you know, creating positive change, not just in our own direct practice, but in wider organisational contexts as well. Yeah, and I think it's really important that in terms of the context, we always remember that we're operating, you know, 
very much sometimes a bit, you know, a bit quite far down the line. Mm-hmm. So in residential child care, it's that, you know, the, the strap line is placement of last resort or, you know, the Cinderella service, all these kind of different strap lines you hear about, you know. Uh, and it's that, but I remember speaking to a consultant psychologist that used to use at North Ayrshire Council. His name is John Jemison. And he he basically <laughs> equated or he used the phrase residential child care is a five-lane superhighway leading to a dirt track, you know. So yeah. essentially what he was saying was that, you know, the, the resources that go into it are huge. Mm-hmm. You know, the cost is huge. Um, but at the, at the other side, essentially, it, it, it can be, it can be, it can be negative, you know. Yeah. And, and, and from that, it's about us as, as practitioners remembering, you know, the fact that we do our very best in difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with social workers, the same with teachers, you know, we're working with wounded people. Yeah. And it's that bit of it, you know, in terms of value base, your value base is going to support that. And I think that's the yeah. beauty of social pedagogy, you know. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So I, and go on, sorry. No, no, it's all right. On you go. I was going to say, and it, you're absolutely fun. You're right. And I mean, we are. So we're, we're dealing with really, you know, really traumatised people, whether they're children or young people or adults, but, you know, in particular children um, who've had, you know, some quite difficult circumstances but yet you know we you then can put them in a system that is very harsh and actually it is you know that culture that organized uh, organizational culture is really important so again you know when we came across the human learning system we could really see those connections with social pedagogy and that's why we created the masters because we realized that it's it's really good that you can skill people up um for their own practice to think about, right, how do I work in more relational ways? How do I work in more ethical human ways that, you know, is really positive. Um, but actually then if they're going into organizations where they're the only person, then that can, you can really quickly lose heart. And, and actually, you know, the new public management system has, has really kind of narrowed the focus of, of the work that we all do. You know, it's, it's more obsessed with outcomes and we're more obsessed with, you know, I've just write, writing an article where I'm talking about, you know, the professionalization of professionalism. So, um, you know, yeah, we have to be professional, but what's happened is we've become obsessed with, you know, the only way that you're seen as professional is you, if you um, are meeting your targets and, and timescales and you've got your assessments up to date, but actually, what about the, the, you know, these are people's lives. These are young people and children's lives that really matter. So where, yeah, we need professional practice, but this is what is really important. So again, it's that thing of how do we get back to the human and how do we help create systems that are healthy for all of us to work in? Because, you know, it's dehumanizing for all of us if we're only focusing on metrics and outcomes and, you know, it, it's yeah. not good for anybody. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much for that, Lois. Now, can I turn our attention to physical restraint? What are your views on physical restraint? And in Scotland, there was a, a, a call for it to be banned. Uh-huh. What, do, what do you think yourself? I think, you know, this is, I think it's a really, really uh, challenging topic. And I think, you know, the, the Scottish government making a commitment to end restraint is is really really positive and I think this is a really important thing um I think you know working in youth justice 
Um, and I, and again, I can't remember who made it. Uh, one, um, it might have been John Ryan again in, in one of the podcasts. Or I can't remember one of the podcast episodes. Somebody talking about how, you know, physical restraint just doesn't just go on in residential children's homes. It goes on in youth offending institutes, secure units, prisons, um, you know, um, homes where there's adults with learning disabilities. And I think, you know, if each context you know that physical restraint is a a really complex issue and I think um, I really loved the um, conversation that you had with uh, is it Beth Ann uh, Logan and she was talking about her experiences and and it's right and I think the thing that really hit home is that you know young people don't have control of their bodies and 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 my heart just bled when I heard her say you know that was the only physical contact she had with an adult was when she was being restrained. I mean, how far wrong have we gone when that is happening? Um, yeah. But yet then on the opposite side, I think if you say, right, we need a ban without having a conversation about, right, okay, yeah, the ultimate aim has to be that we stop doing this, but actually what do we put in place um, You know, uh, before that? So I remember when I was in the leaving care team, not that we ever physically restrained anybody, but our manager um, paid for us all to go on therapeutic crisis intervention training, which was about basically de-escalating, you know, when a young person gets really angry and de-escalating stuff. Um, And I think that was really important because even though all of us had that commitment that we were never going to restrain a young person, I mean, the nearest we got to restraining anybody was having to stand in between two young people who were having a fight, you know, trying to separate a fight. But but we also really realised that actually we needed to think about what we all did individually and collectively, you know, um, before it kind of got to that situation where young people were really angry. And again, I watched, um, after listening to your podcast, one of your episodes, I went off and watched the um, Laura Beveridge's uh, TED Talk and listening to her about how, you know, talking about that vulnerability, but that being that ball of anger. And I think, so yeah, physical restraint, we shouldn't be using it. Um, and, And like I say, if we, if, you know if we think that oh actually some young people they need that well actually they don't need physical restraint what they need is human contact but we also need a lot of all the workforce to be trained properly trained and have that proper understanding about all right well what do we do um you know why might young person be angry but then what do we also do on a practical uh level to kind of bring the tension down you know i've, I've remember you know being in a, visiting a young person in a residential unit and um one of the staff members getting quite annoyed and then following the young person and sticking their foot in the bedroom door so they couldn't shut it and it's like you know things like that are not helpful to to kind of anybody are they you know? so I think no. it's, it's getting people to kind of stop and getting them to reflect and think about the things that they need but I must tell you this really funny story after we had the so we went on this two-day training it was really good and the chap who ran it was absolutely brilliant and it really made us think as a team about right what do we do to kind of help um and I remember this young person coming in about a week later into our office and we had a kitchen downstairs so she come in and she was like really really angry and um so I said do you want a cup of tea and she's like no I don't you know kind of swearing her head off as 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 we do when we're angry and my colleague could hear it. So she came down and she kind of opened the door and then I moved back away from the door so I wasn't blocking it. And she went, oh my God, you lot, this is a young person, you lot, you've been on that effing training, haven't you? The one about calming us all down. <laughs> we were like, what? She's <laughs> like, oh God. yeah, yeah, yeah. Open the door, move away sharp objects. She's like, and then I just started laughing because I was like, oh my God, yeah, this young person could totally see it. 
And then the young person started laughing. And then I was like, yeah, no, we have. And she's like, yeah, all the residential staff where I'm living, they've all been on it as well. And and it was, and then we started yeah. then, like laughing and then having a conversation about it. And then actually it really kind of diffused the situation and she totally calmed down. But but it just really made me chuckle that, you know, I think as adults, we often think that young people can't kind of see what we're doing and actually they immediately get it, don't they? They can see, they're, they're, they're kind of hyper-vigilant and they see these yeah. things. Yeah. So see, see, you see in terms of the human aspect, I just, you know, working with people um, at the University of Central Lancashire, you know, where you are based, uh-huh. um, social pedagogy in terms of the masters, just to maybe give a wee bit of kind of context in terms of the, the course structure, what does it look like for people that are listening that may want to, you know, consider essentially applying for the course for next year or maybe there's academics in Scotland thinking mm, I quite fancy you know developing something uh-huh. how does that how does it look in terms so, of in terms of teaching uh, so yeah so I mean as you know Joe because you hopefully you get that sense of passion we're re- really really passionate about the the masters because like I yeah. said this is about supporting people to think about cultural change and practice changing practice so the whole point of um the masters is and social pedagogy is about how do we use theory but how do we apply it to our practice and there's that real link between theory and practice and so for us it is really important that we create a space where practitioners can come people can come I mean not even people you know we have students that are not necessarily um in work at the minute but thinking about future you know how how do they want to practice in the future and they have that safe space where you can all consider that and think about it and explore some of the theories and ideas and have those conversations about you know what does this look like what does it feel like but why is this important so thinking about theory and how might this theory help develop your practice so everything that we are teaching has a um, a practical application so you can people can go away and try it and use it in their their everyday practice and the first starting point is looking at social pedagogy so what do we mean by that what are some of the core ideas of that Um, and then we've linked it into the human learning system as well so how do we change and develop our practice but also the organizational culture around us how do we work with other organizations in more human ways Um, and you know how do we what does leadership mean as well so how how does leadership fit in? And we're not coming at it from, you know, as the students, anybody who comes on the course, they don't have to be in a management position, but it is thinking about the everyday leadership. So how do we push forward our own practice that then has, you know, those ripple effects of changing the practice of other people that we work with, but then also on the organisational practice. So again, as um, a social worker or as a, as a residential care worker, you actually do have some power to kind of influence and change things sometimes so it's often starts of conversations that and getting people to listen and finding those people that are receptive to having a bit of a think about maybe doing something a bit different the way that change happens so it's helping yeah. people feel a bit more confident and being curious and, and feeling a bit more like they've got the skills and the knowledge to try and have a go at doing something like that and then yeah. we look at the importance of communication as well so how does communication help with change we look at critical reflection so again critical reflection being really important and that learning so I suppose one of the key things to say about learning and linked to the human learning system is that we're not talking about training and professional development development we're talking about learning in the everyday so how do we embed 
that reflective learning into our everyday practice. So it's not just, you know, right, Joe, you need to go on this training course. I'm not saying that training courses aren't important because they are, but it's, you go on it, you do your training, and then it's expected that you're going to then embed that into your practice and, and maybe bring it back to the team that you're working with. What we're talking about is how do we learn and how do we learn from each other, and particularly the children and young people that we're working with as well. And I think, you know, thinking about the promise that, you know, the, the review that you've had in Scotland, that was one of the things that I felt was really positive, was that there was that real willingness to not just to have a conversation with people, but to truly listen and then really reflect and think about what people, what children and families and care experience to pe young people uh, and now young adults and adults are saying about their experiences. And, and I think that is what we need to do. But what I'm mm -hmm. really excited about is that we've got a new module starting in April that is about co-creating change. So again, trying to help people think about right, how do we do this in a genuine way? So how do we work alongside people so that people are, are you know, the people that are experiencing the support that we are offering them or forcing on them or, you know, are in receipt of services, formal welfare services. How do we put them at the heart of making sure that these things matter to, you know, that the support yeah. that they're getting is is meaningful and purposeful to them? Mm -hmm. yeah. I think for me, just just even at the early stages of this course in the first module is a bit about, you know, being a leader, op, you know, operating within a, a local authority setting where there's policy, you know, that there's there's sometimes strict guidelines. And it's that bit about having the confidence to be able to kind of lead uh, and kind of be a transformative leader, mm -hmm. you know, when it's yeah. safe to do so and, and empower people. And I think that, you know, in terms of the, the, the teachings within the, the theory associated with the social pedagogy, social pedagogy perspective, Yes. really helps that you know yeah. i think that, that that's even at this stage is is you know good for me yeah. when i'm having to kind of you know deal with difficult situations yeah. support uh, the team it's that bad but always remember that value base absolutely uh, of you know being authentic and yeah. recognizing the human element of yeah. supporting uh, other humans you know so yeah. it makes yeah. it straightforward but uh, yeah. in practice that can be quite a challenge yeah and i think um, when you know when we because it is really complex work. And again, I think, you know, there is this real misconception from the public and from government, I think, as well, who just don't understand just how difficult, you know, I think people think, oh, you've got your qualification, you're a social worker or you work in residential social care, you just work with people. And, and it's not that straightforward. It's really complex and it's challenging and it's ethical. It constantly challenges you on an ethical basis, on a moral basis. So again, I think one of the really important things like you've just said is in social pedagogy and again in human learning systems is that reflecting back on what is the moral purpose of our work. And I think when, you, when things get really difficult and challenging, if you know that you're doing the right thing, that can help you kind of work through those really difficult dark times you know I, I know I've had um, incidences when I was in practice where I was really challenged on a moral level and you know asked to do things that I just didn't feel was all right for the young person that I was working with and supporting and and then being you know have knowing that actually you know ethics matter I think it, that would have really helped me have a bit more confidence I think if to kind yeah. of go that bit extra mile to challenge things that maybe you didn't feel were all right yeah and we mentioned the human, human learning system. So Toby Lowe, who's one of the kind of main kind of 
kind of guys behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, he uses a, a, a quite a powerful visual in respect to making the connections between, I think it was obesity yeah. uh, and all the different components that impact on the obesity crisis. Yeah. Whereby the, the the UK government or the English government, I think, was trying to say, you know, basically give people some gym passes, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, pretty much access to to, to the, the gym will we'll, yeah. uh, hopefully eradicate the you know the, the obesity crisis. And in yeah. that particular visual that Toby uses, it kind yeah. of demonstrates the number of kind of variables that yeah. impact on actually yeah. the obesity crisis, and it's very complex, yeah. you know. Yeah. So if you if you can use the same kind of uh, visual and can connect that up with anything. And so, for, for example, I can use it used to use use the um, relational universe mm-hmm. to start mapping out the complexities associated with physical restraint. It yeah. just kind of shows they're using the same kind of concept. Yeah. How how complex all these different kind of challenges are, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it's not as easy as just uh, as you say the kind of new public management approach to kind of uh, identifying yeah. cost to uh, a service. It's very it's very complex. Yeah, and I think, and I think that's one of the issues as well. Is that you know we've we've become very over reliant on research and evidence, and I think that we do need to think about what we're doing, and we do need evidence that things work. But what's happened is, is that we take evidence and research as like um, a tick list and a, a, the Bible. You know, you must do X, Y, and Z. And actually, life is really, really complex. And like you say, you know, if you think about obesity, there are there are thousands of factors that impact on on um, obesity. And so, you know, like you say, just giving somebody a gym pass is not going to be enough just to tackle. It might work for one person, but it's not going to work for everybody. So again, it is that thing about, and that's one of the things I love about social pedagogy is that it's about then all right, you've got your moral purpose anchoring you, so you know what you need to do. We're going to try and help somebody flourish and, and live the best life that they can. But then, it, you know, social pedagogy is about then having navigation points and thinking about, right, well, how are we going to do that? How do we do that in a truly meaningful way instead of just working through a process? Because, you know, human beings, yeah. we're not tins of beans. We're, we, you know, we're, com- <laughs> we're very complex. That, that I think that's really exciting and I think it's really right. fascinating and interesting and it means that, you know, no day is the same, is it, you know? And again, no. even in teaching, you know, I, every year we have a new group of students and every year I learn something new and every year it's very different because everybody brings something new and different. Um, you know, we might, you know, go over the same concepts, but actually what's really fascinating is how people um, think about that and reflect on it and, you know, really, every year, yeah. definitely, I learn something new all the time. And, and it's interesting that on this master's course that there's a, a cross-border kind of yeah. <laughs> component. So we've got yeah. uh, four four Scottish people, all from... Yeah, and Sabine Island as well. Uh, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, you know, the majority are, you know, you know England-based, you know, so that, 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 that offers something quite exciting as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, again, there is, there is that thing about recognising that it is about, again, coming down to kind of relationships that we have a lot of commonalities. So you're all coming at it from different perspectives, you know, um, different experiences. But there is some real common threads. And actually, those differences are a really good way of helping us think about things in different ways, aren't they? So, you know, being open yeah. to listening to people with different perspectives helps you um maybe challenge your assumptions and your ideas, but also might help you learn 
um, new things and new ideas, new ways of seeing things, but then also helps you think, well, actually, um, you know, what I know is right as well. So there's yeah. real benefits, you know, and we shouldn't see difference as something that is, yeah. you know, scary. So, uh, yeah. So, so in terms of difference, um, the childcare review is underway in England mm -hmm. and there's also been a very, well, same name, childcare review in terms of the promise in Scotland. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was just wondering, you know, about the similarities and differences from your perspective uh -huh. and, you know, What's your, what's your thoughts? I'd, I've, you know, part of my job, because like I say, teaching is to kind of keep, you know, an eye on what is going on. And also I'm incredibly nosy as well and very political. <laughs> um, and Scotland's always fascinated me because I taught youth justice, or I have taught youth justice in the back. So the children's hearing system, I think is really fascinating and you can real links to social pedagogy. You know, the Kilbrandon report, you know, the committee went over to Scandinavia and spent time in the Scandinavian countries and kind of brought a lot of those principles and ideas back. And it also was a real way of asserting the independence from Westminster as well about doing something different in a real positive way. So I've always been really fascinated by that. And then when I read The Promise, I thought, wow, this is, again, it's, about that real understanding in Scotland, I think, which seems to be much more than maybe here in England about the importance of relationships. And so, um, you know, I've read the, the uh, quite a few of the promised documents and I've been keeping an eye on, on what's kind of happening moving forward. And I think, you know, that, that kind of underpinning, um, you know, well, the fact that the, there was that real commitment to spend time having conversations and genuinely listening and responding to what, children, young people, families, care experienced adults have said about, um, you know, the, the care system has been really interesting. And again, shifting, so the outcomes are recognising in a policy document, the importance of relationships, I just thought was fantastic, with real social pedagogical links, even though they're, they're not mentioning those terms. You know, and I've, I've written it down here that, you know, those relationships have to be real, loving and consistent. And I just think, I was like, yeah, when I read that I was just jumping up and down you know like wow this is brilliant because actually if that's the moral purpose of the work so if our work now as professionals has to be those you know relationships that are real loving and consistent then that's the scope for real innovative practice and change there isn't there so so yeah I think I think the promise is really great I think you know it's now about the how does this happen then in practice and I think again you know, it's it's really important that we all try in our own ways to make sure that those core ideas in the promise are actually genuinely then yeah. um, developed into practice. And I think, um, you know, there's real hope and I think it's real positive. And again, you know, people listen to, uh, you know, Beth Ann Logan and uh, Ian Milligan and John Ryan, just to mention a few of the podcasts I've listened to, you know, I think there's that real sense of hope. However, here in England, I think... Um, I'm going to get really political now. I think it, I think there's a real missed opportunity. I, I'm really, I'm not just disappointed. I think it's quite appalling, really. I think the timescales for the review are really lacking. And I do get the point that, you know, we have had lots of reviews and we kind of know some of these things already. But again, you know, there isn't time and scope to listen to people, genuinely listen. You know, they've, they've got a care experience group, um, 
a lived experience group. And again, it worries me that about just how independent the, the English review is when you've got, you know, the chair has been told that he can't criticise, openly criticise the government, can't ask for more funding. And the fact that there's no mention of poverty and inequality, uh, I think is again really troubling. Um, and what bothers me as well is that there's now seems to be a focus in, in England on the capabilities and approaches used by social workers, and again, there's no recognition that actually over the last 10, 15, 20 years, new public management has pushed social workers to work in very um, bureaucratic ways. And that's okay. had a real impact on relational practice. Um, so it bothers me a lot that um, there are these, um, you know, these things coming out of the review already, these, um, you know, these narratives yeah. around you know well mm -hmm. what is social work practice and actually you know I think if you are ignoring the impact of poverty and inequality on people on children and young people's lives then you know it's it's not going to get anywhere it's a bit like the like you said about obesity the answer is just offer people gym passes it's the same yeah. if this if this review isn't going to take a serious look at things like inequality and and poverty I think it's yeah, yeah. seriously uh, the, uh, yeah. The, the interesting thing about the, the the promise in Scotland and the promise team they they have already I suppose been kind of outwardly critical over the the new national care service that's been you know committed in Scotland and there's some there's a kind of consultation kind of underway and yeah. it was it was kind of and, you know heartening to see that actually pretty much that was you know challenged by the promise team and I felt that was kind of very very um you know healthy for that to yeah. happen um so uh, so hopefully that of some some sort of bearing in Scotland in respect to you know what happens with the National Care Service because I've got quite a number of concerns about that yeah um, and again and I think it is that th you know it's it's I think in a way devolution really helps because you have the ability to to be a bit more critical and and I think you know excuse me, criticism is a good thing. We shouldn't shy away from it because then that helps us reflect and think about, right, well, oh, you know, have we gone lost that moral purpose? Are we getting away from that, you know, supporting relationships to be real, loving and consistent, you know? And, and again, I, I share the same concerns as, as you and, you know, that, you know, the organisation that has been maybe put forward to run the National Care Service is an institution that is only, you know, it's a financial institution. Well, what do they know about social care, welfare services? Yeah. You know, if, yeah. if, you, if their focus is, is on profit, then um, how well equipped are they to help develop truly meaningful, um, you know, children and young people's services? Um, so, yeah, so I think, that, you know, there is a, I think it, there's a real battle happening. And I think, Again, you know, it's really interesting if you think about, you know, up in Scotland, you've wanted to um, embed the UNCRC, which, again, I think is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and I, again, I was like, yes, this is fantastic, because, again, it puts pressure on England. So if you're doing it, then, you know, it doesn't look very good if, if the English government, if, if we're not doing it. And again, I think it's been interesting that this has been one of the things that Westminster has stepped in to try and stop. Well, yeah. why would you stop that? Why would you stop, um, you know, uh, uh, the rights yeah, of children strange. underpinning yeah. everything that we do? Um, so, yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So, finally, the yes. final question, which sometimes <laughs> is quite an interesting question, just about coming back 
and asking yourself to think back and reflect um, about your younger years and if you can go back and give yourself a young, your younger self a bit of advice, yeah. what would that be? I think it would be, but there's two things. I think the first thing would be to have a bit more confidence in, you know, again, going back to that Haltung and that moral purpose and the ethics, that if something felt wrong, then have the confidence to challenge that because know that, you know, if it, if it isn't, you know, right, then it's wrong, isn't it? And that actually, yeah. you know, um, and have faith in the fact that your values are important and they are the thing that can that guide your practice. And then, you know, if you are, you know, if you've got that confidence to challenge, then it means that ultimately, you know, young people and children's, the experiences that they're having is, 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 is much better. Uh, um, so, yeah, so that would be the first thing. And the second thing, again, is is to, and it's always that classic thing, isn't it, that I think you don't appreciate something until it's like under threat of disappearing and that's human rights. So I think yeah. if I could tell myself anything, it would be pay much more attention to human rights, like really seriously get your head around what that means and think about the Human Rights Act and how we can, because I think it's one of the pieces of legislation that we maybe don't use enough. And now it's under threat of, of, you know, they're, they're saying that the Westminster and the government are talking about rewriting human rights. Um, and I have very little faith in, in that being a genuine process that doesn't undermine, you know, the rights that we have. And they've been really hard, you know, people have, those have been really hard won. You know, these have been real fights to get human rights and have human rights embedded. Uh, and again, it goes back to, you know, to get a bit theoretical. Um, Honneth, who's a, a German um, academic, talks about um, the theory of recognition. And he was saying, you know, one aspect of recognition is when we have our human rights upheld in law, it means that we, mm -hmm. you know, we're recognised as being worthwhile. So yeah. so, yeah, so that would be my other piece of advice to myself would be, really get your head around human rights and, and and have that embedded much more into everything that you do. Lois, thank you so much for taking part. Right. And I'm sure, as always, people will get so much from this. Oh, and uh, look, I look forward to the feedback. That'd yeah. be great. Oh, thanks, Joe. I'd just like to say, and I think it's absolutely brilliant that you have set up the podcast and that you are, you know, getting people, because it's one, I think this is one of the fab things about things like podcasts is that people can get their voices out there. And, you know, like I say, I think one of the, um, you know, everybody's got something really interesting to say, but I think particularly, you know, Beth Ann and her, uh, that really challenged me and made me think about lots of things. And so I think giving, you know, a platform to people to, be able to get their voices and their opinions out there it's really important so well done for for yep. getting this off the ground and and doing it so and thanks for asking me thank you thank you so much to lois for taking some time out of our busy schedule today to speak with me as always please share this episode across your networks and if you'd like to take part do get in touch thank you